Welcome to the Reach College Podcast with your speaker, Pastor Taylor Gatt. There's a standard by which we're supposed to behave. Are you unified to what Christ is unified to? I end up having um, a lot of conversations in this job um, with this age group, obviously. And it's interesting to me because I see, essentially, as we look at 1 John, I see kind of two conversations that are more typical. I see a conversation that, that occurs with people who have like an anxiety about their salvation. They're, they're wondering if they're missing something. I can identify with this one personally. I, I spent a lot of time in my Christian life kind of wondering, what if I'm getting something wrong? What if I'm not doing something that I should be doing? And First John is really written to encourage that, that audience. That's who it's written to, is people going, well, what if we're missing something? Or what if we don't get a piece of this? And John is writing to them to encourage them and say, this is how you can know. This is how you can see and have confidence that you are actually saved. He starts out with kind of this idea that if, you, if you're anxious, that's a good start. If, if you're wondering if I'm saved, people who aren't saved often don't have that thought because it'll keep you up at night. And then there's the other side of this coin that I run into occasionally, which is this totally sure I'm saved mentality despite no real fruit, despite that if, if you were to hold their life up next to the Word of God, it wouldn't look similar at all, and it wouldn't look like they were beginning to grow more similar. But they're just positive. They're, they're sure that they're saved. And if you're, if you're feeling that anxiety, the question is, why do I constantly feel separated from God? Like, why, do, why does it seem to be a, there's a gap in between myself and God so often? The point of that gap, it's a system designed for, for two things, at least. One is it actually protects us from sin, right? Because normally that gap is produced when we're not living in accordance with the Word of God. So when we sin, God lets us feel this gap, not because He has failed to save us and He's wanting us to call into question again and get re-saved, He's letting us feel that gap because it should cause us to go away from sin towards Him and it perpetually protects us from sin's damaging effects. It's hard to live in that. And then the other piece of that is that it actually lets us uh, experience an ever deeper understanding of our positional reality. If you've been saved in a moment, you get to experience that throughout the rest of your life Because you're not perfect, you get saved, God makes you righteous with Him, and then for the rest of your life, as this gap forms, you continually experience that reality every time you come back to Him, and that reality produces this uh, joy, a rejoicing, like a, uh, it, it actually causes you to love God more because you see constantly that He's saving you from these gaps. 
That's the side of, of that John's writing to is people who need to be assured that they are saved, and this is what it should feel like. And then the other, the added benefit of 1 John is that if you don't ever feel this way, if you never have this, this repentant relationship, but you're able to just live in that separation long term with no real consequence in your, like to your spirit or your anxiety or your mindset, it should cause you to do some soul searching and to say, do I actually believe this? Because it doesn't seem to have any effect on my life. If you're just riding this moment where you got saved and, and the rest of your life looks unchanged and untouched by that, there's a good chance that that, that was a fraud. You're self-deceived. You're, you're holding on to something that has no uh, real fruit. So the first uh, three messages that we taught, uh, taught on First uh, John, he talks about God is light. He says, to stumble, to fall away from God shows that you're not in the light. Because if you were in the light, if you're walking in light, there's no reason to stumble. You can see where you're going. You can see how you're supposed to act. Well, he's going to transition. And for the next three lessons, he's going to go into this thing about God is love. He's going to define what love is and show us who God is in that love. This... Um, this, this, this sermon today in verse 16, we're going to see the definition of love given to us. So let's start. We're in 1 John chapter 3. And we're going to start in verse 11. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we are to love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother, and for what reason did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil, but his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers and sisters. The one who does not love remains in death. Everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life remaining in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers and sisters. But whoever has worldly goods and sees his brother or sister in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God remain in him? Little children, let's not love with, with, our, um, with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Okay, in verse 11 he says, in the beginning. Now this phrase throughout John is used synonymously with Jesus and also it's, it's given a double meaning, which is not only that it is who Jesus was from the very beginning of time to be our salvation, but also what you heard when you got saved, the first moment. There's no adding to it. There's no changing it. There's no taking away from it. Now, remember the context is John is addressing these heretics who are leaving the church, and they're saying, you know, Jesus really isn't it. We've got this special knowledge. We've got this additional understanding. You need to come over and, and get that. And he's saying what you heard in the beginning about he who was from the beginning, that's it. That's the whole message. That's the gospel. It doesn't change. It doesn't get adapted. There's no special knowledge. That's what we know. And he says we're not to love as Cain. So the Cain and Abel story... Um, we know that Cain 
Cain and Abel were the son of, sons of Adam and Eve, and they both, at a, at a time, they bring offerings to the Lord. And what we see in this very earliest part of Scripture is that Cain brings an offering to the Lord out of some of what he has, almost an obligation, but Abel brings an offering to the Lord that is the best, the best portions of what he has. He sacrifices his first fruits to God. And so then we see that Cain kills Abel. And, and what does John say right here of why? He says, because his own deeds were evil, but his brothers were righteous. His own deeds were evil. Have you ever, how many of you have siblings? How many of you are not the golden child out of your siblings? Right? And, and what happens? The golden child in your sibling group that your parents are always, you know, why can't you be more like your sister? Right? What does that do? There's resentment there. It causes this kind of aggressive, oh yeah, if I, if I were just more like the golden child. Because the reality is this, there's a standard by which we're supposed to behave and be called. And if we're not doing that, if we're actively rejecting that, then we don't like people who are doing that, who are living correctly. This is why, what he's painting a picture of here, is why the world hated Jesus. Sin makes us resent righteousness. Jesus came into the world and was the perfect picture of righteousness. And because of sin, we hated him. And we crucified him. He was the very definition of the golden child. And God points to Jesus and says, be more like him. And we resent that. So he says, so the world hates Christians, but Christians what? Look at verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers and sisters. The one who does not love remains in death. We know that we have passed from death into light because... This is an assurance. This is how you can know that you're saved. He says, we know because we love God's children. If we love God's children, we love God. It's an evidence. He's saying, he's saying that this, this love, this supernatural love for the golden child, for those who are being like Christ, that's the opposite of the natural effect. The natural effect is to resent that. So when you love God's people... That's an evidence that you are one of his children. Liking church is not natural. We're not born with a desire to be here. Sinners don't want to be here at all. And if we're honest, a lot of times we don't want to be here. This is not what most of us always would rather be doing with our Sunday mornings. This is why people who are not Christians, they sleep in on Sundays. It's a second Saturday. It's another day to be off. Coming here and wanting to be here and enjoying this and feeling a, a pull to this is not natural. So that's an evidence. We make a lot of excuses about why we don't go to church, or we, we've heard a lot of these excuses. Oh, well, I do church at home. I'm part of the universal church, the big C church. Here's the reality. The Bible calls you to a local body. It calls you to participate in ministry with that body. And it calls you to serve others and bear their burdens inside of that body. You can't do church at home. 
It's, it's impossible for you to shut yourself up in your house with just you and, and your dog or maybe your loved ones and say, well, we're the church because we're Christians. We're part of the big C universe church. No, you are called to a local body that performs actions of ministry and love and service together. That's a part of being in the body. You can't do it at home. We see another one. Well, the veil was torn so that I could be closer to God, so I could go directly to Him. I don't need the priest or the pastor to get me there. You're right. You can pray to God without a pastor. You, can, you don't have to confess directly to a pastor. You confess to God, and you have a one-on-one relationship with Him. The problem is we've been given these qualifications for overseers and for deacons, And the church body can only function when the people who have been appropriately vetted by the body with those qualifications are leading it. Now, that does not disrupt your intimate, alone prayer time with God. They're two different things, though. So you don't need the priest to talk to God. But you are called to be led by the overseer, by the elders is what we call them in this church. You are called to be under qualified overseers. Well, I have the Holy Spirit. I can learn the Bible on my own. That's true too. You can, the Holy Spirit teaches you the Word of God. He draws out lessons from the Word of God. You can read the Bible and be taught what God is saying. You also have flesh, sinful flesh. And that flesh will guide you away from the truth and fight with the Holy Spirit who's leading you towards the truth. There's safety in numbers. The Christian life is designed to be lived together. It's designed to be a group activity because as much as you have the Holy Spirit and as much as you can read the Word and get the lesson out of it, you also have the temptation of your flesh to manipulate the Word of God to to not offend you and offend your sin And strength in numbers is when you come together and you say, well, I I read this in the Word of God, and somebody goes, "Ah, here's why there's a better way to understand that. And it keeps you within inside the boundaries of good biblical interpretation so that you don't stray off and do something silly. Well, the church is actually the people. It's, it's It's not the building. It's the people of God. So I don't have to go to the building to be in church. Listen, actually the church is the, it is the people, but it is the people behaving like the body. Now the Bible tells us that the Spirit is present when we meet together, even two or three of us. But the reality is this, the church is God's people acting according to what the church looks like in the Word of God. That is not simply you and one other person reading the Bible. There are additional functions of the body, and you're called to those functions. And so all of these things are just excuses so that I can sleep in this Sunday or watch my favorite sports event instead. You can't do church without the body. And here's the assurance of this. The assurance is, are you unified to what Christ is unified to? Christ is consistently unified to the body, to the church. That is made clear in Scripture. Christ 
is sees the church, the body of believers functioning a certain way as his bride. So if you don't love his bride and if you're not unified to his bride, then you're not. You're not his bride. You have to do all of these things, not because these things save you. These things show that you have a supernatural desire for something that isn't natural to desire, which shows that you are saved. It brings you an assurance. And he says, if you're not unified to what Christ is unified to, you remain in death. Again, this is not about church membership. I'm not saying if you haven't signed a membership card, you're out. That's not what I'm talking about. But if you are making all these excuses to not be unified to God's people, that should cause you to question the reality of your so-called love for Jesus. And then look what he says after that in verse 15. Everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. Whoa. A murderer. That's pretty strong language. I mean, that's that's not pulling his punches. We're going to flip over. I'm going to flip over and I'm going to read to you guys from Matthew 5.21. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not murder, and whoever commits murder shall be answerable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be answerable to the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be answerable to the supreme court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into fiery hell. Here's the thing. Saying that hating your brother is the same as murder. It's not saying that you're guilty of the action of murdering someone. It's saying that you're holding on to the same sin that murder is, and all sin is a rejection of who God is. You can't be living in the sin of hating your brother or in the sin of murdering your brother. You can't be living in that sin and say, I'm united with Christ. You don't have eternal life if you're, if you're guilty of rejecting God at every moment. Now, again, this is not to say that you can't stumble. This is not to say that you, don't, you won't make mistakes. Your flesh has not been perfected. It's warring against your spirit. But if you are living in, walking in, continually practicing sin, how is that of God? How can that possibly be God's spirit indwelling in you and guiding you towards Christ's likeness. And then we get to to verse 16. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. This, this right here, is the definition of love. Romans 5, but God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Think about a short list. Who would you die for? It should be a short list. There's not a lot of people that I would actively sacrifice my life for. Pretty much my immediate family. The reality is that Christ died for everyone. For people who would reject him. For people who hate him. He died for you while you were rejecting him. While you did hate him. The reality is Christ is the definition of love because he died 
for you. Jesus died for you. Don't water that down, right? You know how you, you know how you water it down? You always focus on the world. Jesus did die for the whole world, but he died for you specifically. Go read John 3.16 and trade out world with your name. For God so loved Taylor in this way that he gave his only son. See how that changes things? He didn't just die for this amalgam of people. He died for me, for me specifically. That is the definition of love, that Christ would actually lay down his life and die for you. And then it says we ought to mimic that. Think, think through that with me. We're supposed to be Christ-like, and Christ's ultimate act of love was to die for us. Anybody up to that task right now? Because the reality is, your whole life, you are falling short of, of who Jesus is. And the idea that we're supposed to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters, not not for our immediate family, not for our blood relatives, not for our spouse. I mean, all those people included, hopefully, but for the brothers and sisters. Here's the thing. If dying is the ultimate act of love, then what is less than that that clearly falls into that? Putting others first, serving them, suffering an offense when they do something wrong instead of lashing out defending yourself, apologizing when you're wrong, supporting people. You see how none of that equals the level of call to be to die? You're supposed to be burdened for your brothers and sisters. You're supposed to be carrying their burdens. And yes, if it comes right down to it, to die as well. Do you know how you get to the place where you would die for your brothers and sisters? You bear their burdens. You serve them. You grow close with them. And you spend life with your brothers and sisters. And then when that day comes, Lord willing, it doesn't. Lord willing, you're not called to that day. But if you spend your whole life bonding with His people, then when that day comes, you'll have a peace that surpasses an understanding because you will say, Lord, I will die for my brothers and sisters. I will be like you. The martyrs of the first and second century, they were honored that God would choose them to, to mimic Christ in this ultimate sacrifice for his people and for him. They got to share in the most Christ-like act we can possibly have in dying for him and for others. And you know what happens if you are of God and you die for his people? You go to heaven. That's the thing. It's a, it's a missed focus. Paul said to live as Christ, to be in Christ, to walk as Christ walked, and to die is gain. How is dying gain? It is if your perspective is, this is a pale comparison to what I get in eternity in heaven. So who cares? Why would I let that hinder me from following Jesus to that last second with my utmost to be like him? Go read Revelation. See that the people who are martyred for Jesus, they're exalted. They're lifted up. Because they mimicked Christ all the way through the last breath they took. 
And then John is going to give us practical guidelines for this. Dying seems pretty hard. So he's going to give us this understanding of if dying is the top, then what, every, what falls underneath that? What does this look like? Look in verse 17. But whoever has worldly goods and sees his brother or sister in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God remain in him? Little children, let's not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. In James... In James 2.15, it says this, If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm, and be filled, yet you do not give them what is, what is necessary for their body, what use is that? In the same way, faith also, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Do you know what the equivalent, what James... I always, always associate that passage in James with something specific to our culture. Thoughts and prayers. Thoughts and prayers. I'm praying for you. What are you doing? Are you doing anything? You know, oftentimes what thoughts and prayers mean, really? Look at how holy I am. Because my response to your tragedy is God-honoring prayer. Look, there's nothing wrong with praying for people. You need to pray for people. That's how we participate. As a matter of fact, prayer is, is how your heart is changed to act on other people's behalf. But if you're saying, well, I'm going to pray for you, and you don't act, are your prayers effective? Are they doing anything? The reality is we are called to act. James says that your faith is dead, worthless. It's worthless to God, it's worthless to you, and it's worthless to everyone around you. And then, then you hear this objection, well, you know, I don't have enough. I don't have enough. I'm struggling myself. I can't provide for somebody else's need. One percent of you really don't have enough, like really can't spare in a moment to help someone else. You know what? 1% of you. And if that's the case, okay. If your conscience is at peace and you're looking at your situation, maybe you're the one who needs help in this moment. Okay, that's fine. I'm not talking to you. The rest of you, what you actually mean is, I might not have enough later. I might not have enough if something bad happens. It's not you saying, I don't have enough literally to feed myself right now. It's you saying, what about tomorrow? It, the bottom line is, it's not trusting God, it's trusting in your bank account, in your wisdom, and in your decision making. It's the exact opposite of trusting in God. Here's a question. You don't have enough. Are you still getting everything you want off Amazon? Are you still impulse buying? Are you actually saving every penny because you need every penny today just to go to the store and get some food? Or are you just not trusting in God. Listen, the reality is some of you still live at home and I get that some of you need to still live at home. But some of you live at home because you just don't want to be poor. You're afraid of moving out and actually having to grow in Christ's likeness and trust God to meet your needs and pay your bills and, and get you groceries because it's easier to stay at home now, again, 
I hesitate with those statements because I know everybody's situation is different. It could even be that God has called you specifically to live at home. That could be the case. I'm not taking that off the table. I'm saying that's not the majority. The majority of people in this room, if you're still living at home, it's actually because you have a lack of trust in God moving with you and God taking you to the next thing. Go ask your parents and your parents' parents about their stories. They were poor. They grew up poor. They dealt with poverty. My parents tell stories about having a knothole in the side of their first house that let birds in. That sounds terrible. I've never been that poor. But the reality is, did God provide for them? Was he there? And by the way, go ask them about the growth they had with each other during that period of time. Go ask them about about the growth they had with Christ during that time. You're short-circuiting God's development in your life because you don't want to trust him to handle something. God does not promise us comfort in this life. That's not part of it. That's not in the Bible. Is your faith worthless? Verse 18, little children, let's not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. Deed. He's saying actions, right? Not lip service, not thoughts and prayers. Love in action. And then truth has two, two meanings to it. One is to truly love. He's adding that on to actions because he's saying don't just make a checklist. Well, I gave somebody money this week, and I gave somebody a ride, and I fixed somebody's tire, and so I'm holy. Accomplished. Check. No. He's saying love truly. Let those things be born out of the love you have. And then the other thing is, it's a, it's a condition of not endorsing sin to love in truth. Okay, so, so I'm supposed to give money to people in need. When do I not give money to someone in, in need? What if the reason that you're in need is because you are walking through a season of, of not honoring God with your budget and you are being irresponsible. And when I give you money, I'm actually going to circumvent what God is teaching you, the consequences of your sin, and I'm going to give you more money to go be irresponsible with. That's not loving you. Loving you is letting God walk you through that season and that consequence and understand there's a better way that to honor God with my money. Right? So I have to love you in truth, which means if the discernment of the Holy Spirit in my life says, this actually won't help you, because God's teaching you something, okay, then I don't do that. Or how about this one? How about the more popular version of our culture, which is this? I don't want you to feel bad about the sin in your life, so we're going to find a way to tell you that God doesn't care about it. This is why you have a whole movement in Christian theology, which is that it's okay to be a practicing gay person in spite of the fact that the Bible clearly shows that that's not okay. And that's not loving someone in truth. It's like when your toddler is running towards the street full of traffic and you go, I just, I don't want to upset them. No, you're snatching that toddler away from death. That's loving someone in truth. That's telling someone what you're doing is playing in traffic. Stop doing that. John says, are you loving or are you hating? Look at verse 19. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will set 
our heart at ease before Him. That if our heart condemns us, that God is greater than our heart and He knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us and we have confidence before God, uh, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. Okay. If I'm loving with my heart, it will be at rest before God. I'll have a peace that surpasses understanding. Right? I'll have a peace about where my heart is that I don't necessarily grasp why, but it will come from this place of, of my heart being at rest. The interesting thing is the word know there is a future tense word. He's saying that you will know during a trial, during a questioning of your faith, you will know that you're saved then because of everything you've done up to that point. Everything that led to it will let you know. So the way that I'm acting and living out my faith will allow me to know that my heart can be at rest, that it's not in sin. And then it says, when my heart condemns me. Okay, a few things are happening there. First of all, my heart is possibly set on something that does not match God, right? What my heart condemning me is my conscience saying, you're, you're, you feel like this right now. That may, that doesn't necessarily change your position of reality. If you are saved, you are still saved even when you feel like this. But when my heart condemns me, it is calling me to a place of repentance and reconciliation so that I can be back in line with God in the moment that matches the position of reality that changed at some point in my life. The other thing here is, it's interesting, what he's saying is, God is actually greater than your sin. What that means is, you, you have to trust that even in this moment, this has not changed my position of reality. This should call me back to him, but, but my heart condemning me is designed to create that reconciliation. It's not designed for me to go, I haven't been saved this whole time. I haven't got it. See, notice that John isn't saying it should cause doubt. He's saying, what John is saying is that unbelievers aren't bothered by this. Unbelievers don't, nothing, this doesn't register with them. Okay, here's the reality. If this is your sin nature and your whole life, your sin nature is just chugging along, doing its thing, right? When you get saved, you get the Spirit. And the Spirit now clashes with your sin nature. The fact that there's something in there clashing is an evidence. It is an assurance. Because if you're not having something clash with your sin nature, you, you're not saved. Something's just, your sin is dominating you. It's running with you. And, and he's saying, when your heart condemns you, that's partly the evidence that God is fighting back against your sin nature and is greater than your sin nature. If you're not bothered by the red flags, that's when you should go have doubt. That's when you should be in fear, when you're not bothered by your sin, when there's nothing opposing your sin nature. He says when our hearts are right with God, God becomes a wish-granting genie, right? That's what that verse says? No. He says, and whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. Here's the reality. When my heart is right with God, I get what I pray for because God and I are thinking the same way. When my heart matches God's heart, 
then what he wants, I want, and when he wants it, that's when I want it. I'm praying for things correctly. This is why people of faith see their prayers answered so much. It's because they're asking for the things God wants them to have. James says we don't get things we want when they are for our pleasure, when they're for us, to spend on us, when it's about us and exalting ourselves. James says, if your heart matches God's heart, you'll get what you pray for. That's what John's saying right here, that the whole Bible is clear that prayer is answered when I'm walking and abiding in Christ's likeness, and then when I'm not, I don't get what I prayed for. There's always a condition there, and people like to focus on this one thing. When I pray, I receive what I ask for. Lamborghini, here we come. And that's not it. it. Now, if I am walking in the Holy Spirit, and God lays on me that I need a Lamborghini, can't I cannot imagine the circumstances, and I was to pray for it, it would happen. As unbelievable as that seems. But that's not how people use it. They just want a Lamborghini. That's not what the Bible says about gifts. Again, it's a misallocation of when, when do I want my reward? Right now? This sliver of all of eternity, this mist that disappears before I even notice it's there? Or do I want my reward in heaven for all time? I don't care about comfort now because I want rest and peace and joy with God for eternity. That doesn't happen right now. Matthew 7, 7 is when we're told to ask and seek and knock repeatedly, repetition to find the answers that God has for us. Okay, here's the thing. Prayer does two things when we do it right. One is it allows us to participate in what God is doing. Do you want to see a real joy for answered prayer? Spend time asking God for something for a long time. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. God wants to know if you're in this, if you're participating. And when you put that blood, sweat, and tears into your prayer, and you've asked God for a long time to answer a prayer, and He answers that prayer, that will rock your world. You will participate in what God is doing, and it's an awesome thing. But here's the other piece. We always have this kind of hesitation of like, well, how do I know what to pray for? What if I'm praying wrong? What if I'm not praying for the right thing? What if I am praying for the Lamborghini? Do you know what the only real wrong answer with prayer is? To stop doing it. Here's the bottom line. If you continue to have that conversation with God and you pray and you participate in His will, you know what happens? He will mold you to want what He wants. I have prayed for something for so long that I found myself praying against it. That's, that's exactly what's supposed to happen. God, I want this. I want this. I think this is what you want. I want it. I, you know, I kind of see why I don't want that. You know, God, I don't want that. I do not want that thing. Don't give me that thing. That's the whole point. It's designed to change our hearts because you're becoming more Christ-like. And then when you say, I, I want this. No, I, I do want this. No, God, I know you want this. Guess what happens? You get it. You get that thing because that's exactly what God wants for you. And he's laid that on your heart. So the only, the only thing, here's what we do. God, I, I want it, but like, if you don't want it, then like, you know, it's okay if you, if you like can't give it to me or like not going to give it to me. And then we stop. That's it. We said one prayer for it. It doesn't happen. And we go, I guess God didn't want it. That's not the model of prayer. That's not in the Bible. The Bible tells us to pray continually without ceasing. Prayer and petition, pleading with thanksgiving. God, make me more like you. And if this is something, and then that brings me, I'm going to read a passage out of uh, Hebrews. This is Hebrews 13, 21. 
equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us. Hmm, I got the wrong verse here. Here's the point, because I didn't write down the right verse. In Hebrews, we're told to pray for things that are good in God's eyes. You've probably heard me talking about this recently. This is a new thing for me. I realized that this phrase has actually revolutionized my prayer life. I have started praying, Lord, give me this if it's good in your eyes. Here's why. Because if it's not good in God's eyes, I desperately don't want that thing. I desperately don't want it. Listen, you, you should pray this about everything. Lord, heal me of this thing if it's good in your eyes. Because even in that moment that you can't imagine why God would not want to heal me from this thing, the reality is if God, if it's not good in God's eyes, it's because he has a plan, and that plan is amazing. And that plan, by the way, is to make you Christ-like, which may mean going through this thing. So even if you don't understand it, you're not praying for what I think is good right now. You're saying, if it's good in your eyes, if this is a part of your will, it's acknowledging that if I'm praying for a bottle of poison to drink, I desperately don't want that bottle of poison delivered to me. I tell this, people, I tell this to people with dating all the time. Anybody you date, the prayer should be, Lord, I only want to date this person. I only want to be with this person. I only want this relationship if it's good in your eyes. Because guess what? If it's not good in God's eyes, it's poison and it's death. That person, by the way, they could be a great person. They could be somebody else's future husband or wife and be totally fulfilling. And guess what they are to you? Poison. That person is only godly and fulfilling for the person God made them to be godly and fulfilling too. And if you're taking that because you're more afraid of being alone because you've decided what's good right now, you're drinking poison. John says we can know, we can know if we remain in Christ, we can know if we remain in Christ by if we obey in Christ. Look at verse 23. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. The one who keeps his commandments remains in him, and he uh, in him, and he in him. We know by this that he remains in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. All right. Verse 23 is the whole point of the Bible. The whole point of the Bible. Know God and make him known. Know God and make him known. The two greatest commandments, love the Lord your God, love others. How do you love others? You you tell them who Jesus is. That's the most loving thing you can do for them, right? And how do you love God? By loving what he loves. Others. It's amazing. It's just this big circle of If I know God more and I love Him more, it causes me to overflow with a love for other people and a pouring out of who He is to them, which in turn is loving them because I'm letting them know who God is, which in turn is loving God. It, it, That's the whole Bible. The whole Bible is just a repeat of that system over and over and over again. How do I know God? Well, are you making Him known? 
in your actions, in your deeds, in your words? Are you telling people about Jesus with your lifestyle? Are you telling people about Jesus with your words? It takes both. Listen, if you have actions, if you if you only live out your your faith, but you don't tell people about Jesus, they don't know they don't get it. They don't get the message. They see you're different, but they don't know what to do with that. And if you only tell people about Jesus and you don't live like it, they won't believe you. You have to live out your faith and then explain that to people and tell people who Jesus is. Why why am I able to live the way I'm able to live? Because of who Jesus is. It's that simple. Hey, why are you different? Because I serve Jesus. Because I love Him. Making Him known is a byproduct of knowing Him. James, James is my favorite book of the Bible. I reference James all the time. And in James, he says, pure and undefiled religion is this, to visit widows and orphans in their distress and remain unstained by the world. That's two things. That's acting in love and avoiding sin. That's it. That's the whole Bible. Why do I avoid sin? Because I can't truly love other people with sin in my life. Why do I love other people? Because I'm avoiding sin and living in righteousness with God. Again, whole Bible is just a circle of that reality. Are you remaining in Christ or are you self-deceiving? If you respond to the lesson of 1 John and the whole book of 1 John with, yeah, I'm definitely saved. Of course I'm saved. And there's just no fruit there's no love. There's nothing uh, Christ-like. You're not unified to what Christ is unified to. Part of this book is designed to ask you, what makes you think that this is real for you? What makes you think that you have anything more than worthless faith, worthless words? The book of James is literally that message on blast. Oh, you say you believe? You say God is one? Congratulations. The demons know who God is. If you're sure of your salvation and nothing in your life demonstrates that, that should scare you to death. But on the other hand, if you're anxious, if you're constantly anxious and constantly asking yourself, I I don't know, am I saved? Do I get this? John's going to ask you this. Do you have a habitual sin in your life? Do you have something that you just live in and love and walk in sin? Okay then, you have a reason to be anxious. You're here, there's a gap. Reconcile that. See the the positional reality lived out in this moment of experience, in this moment of repentance and obedience. Or, you're being attacked by an enemy. That enemy has one tactic since the beginning of time. Did God really say that? Has God told you that you're saved? Have you walked through the salvation moment where you had a positional reality with God and then do you see the fruit of that lived out in your life in the repeated repentance and closing of this gap and the living out of that love and abiding uh, relationship with Jesus? I'm going to point you back to Numbers 23, 19. Is God a man that he would lie or a son of man that he would change his mind? Does he speak and not act or promise and not fulfill? If you 
have settled the positional reality and you see the fruit of those gaps closing throughout your life. You're experiencing your salvation and you're living in a reconciled relationship with God that loves others, that, that knows God and makes him known. God doesn't lie. It's settled. You can be sure even when the enemy gets in your head and says, did God really say? Did God really say? So you can both lean into the reality that, yes, you are safe. There is no condemnation for you in Christ. And yet, in that moment that you may have a sin in your life, what keeps you from walking in that sin? This feeling of separation. And when I feel separated from God, because God desperately doesn't want me to live in sin because it's damaging and hateful and hurtful to my life, physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, this gap causes me to come back and reconcile that. It's a beautiful system. It protects us our whole life. You also can't do it apart from the body. The Christian life is not made to be lived alone. I love the story of Moses standing on the hilltop overlooking the battlefield. And God says, if you will hold your hands up, you'll win the battle. And what happens? They get tired. And he begins to drop his hands. Have you ever just tried to hold your hands over your head for a long period of time? It gets miserable. But what happens? Two of his brothers come alongside of him, and they push his hands up. That's the picture of the body. That's what we're supposed to be doing for each other. Listen, sometimes you're the one with your hands up, and you are starting to fade, and you desperately need people to come alongside of you. And you need to have humility because the opposite is going, no, I can definitely keep my hands up forever alone. That's stupid. Sometimes you need someone to come alongside you and lift your hands up. What First John is actually talking about is being the person who comes alongside and lifts other people's hands up. Again, you, you can't do that apart from the body. You can't do that apart from Christ. But as you live out this life in Christ's likeness and you grow in Him, God will lead you to people who are fading. Their hands are coming down. And he says, if you're the person who runs up to them and says, oh, I got you. Let me lift your hands up. Let me help you out in this moment. You're one of his. And the alternative looks like this. Praying for you, brother. Good luck. That's not it. That's just church speaking. Hey guys, this is Philip Jackson, pastor of Young Adults at Evergreen Baptist Church. I want to invite you to come to Reach. We meet every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at Evergreen Church in South Tulsa, just east of Mingo on 111th Street. The mission of Reach Tulsa is to cultivate a young adult community that's defined by real transformation and a sincere pursuit of a godly life through training in biblical disciplines, personal development, and intentionally transitioning into independence as mature members of the body of Christ. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We're available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Reach Young Adult Ministry is a part of Evergreen Baptist Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org.